0: Welcome to part two of our conversation with Colette Baron Reed and Dr. Bob Weathers, which we discuss the enslaving disease of addiction and the way out. I think you're going to love this, and it applies not only to those of us who are addicts and no addicts, but these rules are good for each and every one of us, and you're going to find them a great inspiration. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self. In my experience, it seems that our, uh, my beloved addicts and alcoholics and, you know, late stage, that severe trauma, real deal stuff is mm-hmm. often part of the whole syndrome. And so to get totally sober a lifetime plan without dealing with that underlying or unconscious, albeit controlling trauma, is it's not the odds go way down being able to. to to keep it together. So what do you guys think about that?
1: Mm, Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to start talking here because the whole point of sobriety is not to be dry. The whole point of sobriety is to deal with those things. You take away the medicine, which was, was medicine in the beginning, which then became the poison. But the whole reason you do it is to escape yourself and to escape connection. So when you come back and you are raw and you have, you have to when you know, if you follow a 12 step program, you have to look at yourself with clarity and you make amends when you see it et cetera, and you keep on doing the inventory, 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 like where, what is my part in this, etc, without blame or shame in the game, you know, so if you don't deal with those original traumas, et cetera, you're going to continue to be triggered and you're likely going to continue to have more and more similar things but they get less and less the harder the more now i don't i don't want to say harder the the more you actually work this through right so it's i think you get sober then you go get help
0: yeah uh, well, what do you think what i mean what's your perception of that? what's that uh, just about it's as trauma being part and parcel of the whole addictive process i mean severe stuff
2: A thought comes to mind, you know, the ACE studies that were so pivotal in in addiction research back in the 90s were looking at adverse childhood experiences. And Roger, you know, these studies, too. They were looking at the correlations between childhood trauma, you know, physical abuse, neglect, emotional, sexual abuse parental drug abuse, incarceration, these all these categories. They were looking at medical markers. They were looking at how does this predict vulnerability to cardiopulmon, cardiopulmonary difficulties, cancer, diabetes, and so on. And they threw addiction into the mix. And what they discovered is that to, to have, and it's a linear correlation, the more trauma you've experienced, the more vulnerable you are to addiction to the order of five or 10 times the normal level of risk involved. So they asked, well, what's going on with that? And what they discovered is that to be exposed to severe developmental trauma is to be in adulthood walking around with a baseline cortisol and adrenaline level, the stress hormones, it's, it's going to be five or 10 times normal. I think of this as walking down the sidewalk, somebody who didn't grow up in my background, or Colette, I'm going to infer from what you said, your background, they're walking around and their baseline stress level might be a one, whereas mine is a 10. Yeah. As I've mentioned before, I used to have a client who was a RN, a nurse, and she said, Bob, nobody can barbecue in their own adrenaline. And I've never <laughs> forgotten that is that you literally can't it's not sustainable to walk around with that kind of elevation and baseline stress level. And so the way this goes in from the ACE studies okay. is that that not everybody that's been traumatized becomes clinically addicted, but virtually 100% of those that are clinically addicted were traumatized. And you get exceptions like in a room of 25 people, I'll discuss these results. And there'll be one person that said, Bob, I grew up in a totally facilitative home environment, had good friends, good support, believed in God and all of that. And that happens. People just just fall in with the wrong crowd, go to the wrong party, whatever like that. That is so radically the exception, it proves the rule. So the rule is, is that trauma feeds directly into addiction. And out of a group of addicts, very few would not have, have experienced that, which gets back to Colette's point, which is that if we don't do shadow work in whatever form, my background as a psychologist is that I dig deep into personal trauma, for example, current relationships that may be traumatizing, et cetera, is that we're, we're, we're and, and also shame, <laughs> shame. You dig into the sources of shadow and that's what you work on to get free of that. So and we all have different methodologies for doing that. I don't see how anybody can sustain, I think you can get sober, but I don't think you can sustain sobriety without doing that that deep digging down into the shadow and getting that cleared up. So I would agree with you, Colette, that it's absolutely required. Yeah. Yeah,
1: totally. Otherwise you're just dry. You're a dry drunk.
2: Otherwise. That really is the definition of one in action, isn't it? Is that I can stop I can stop drinking for right now. What I can't do is sustain it. And what I'm doing is just waiting till I pop. Freud had this hydraulic model, the idea that the pressure builds and builds and builds until it, off it pops, and then you have relapse. And so it's, it is possible to stop drinking or drugging. It's not possible to sustain that without without doing the shadow work as far as I'm concerned. If it involves virtually 100% of those that are in an addicted population, there's going to have to be some technology, some methodology for dealing with that. And every therapeutic persuasion has a different way of doing that. But it's 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 right in the heart of the work you do, Colette. I'm sure of it. And you can bet your bottom dollar it's in the work that I do. And it's also, speaking of which, let's just talk honestly, my own work. I've been in therapy because I've been a psychologist my whole life since birth. I've been in therapy all these years, and there was there were new levels of therapy that I needed to do in terms of digging into shadow. So it wasn't that I was unworked, I just had so much more to do. And I realized, I'll I'll talk very specifically, I had so much shame that came up around the losses connected to my own addiction. The, 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 the losses were just cataclysmic personally and professionally for me. I realized early on that if I don't find tools to deal with this element of the shadow, that is shame. I will die. That, that And that wasn't melodrama. That was the reality. I have got to find ways to deal with this. And so it was like, like you say, John, when you're stressed out, you don't meditate less, you, mes- you meditate more. When I discovered what I was up against, I didn't do less therapy. I did more therapy in every possible modality imaginable, psychologically and spiritually. It was all required if I was going to survive this.
1: I think you touched on that. Shame is such a crucial, crucial part of recovery you know you're ashamed that you don't have control we live in a society where you know all the different isms are about controlling yourself controlling other people controlling where you are in the hierarchy of the people you know but when it comes to like that sense of I don't have control and I have destroyed these things or even you know when you're molested or you've been raped you've lost control to you 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 lost the ability to choose there's shame there. There's, there's shame that the, one of the first books I read in recovery, cause it was written that, you know, back in the early eighties was healing the shame that binds, right. It's, that was such a crucial turning point. I joined a group that went to the book. It was so powerful and profound, you know, that how, how shame really, really runs the show, you
0: know, and, and there's, there's two things you can do with this trauma that i found. Either you can turn the shame uh, on yourself, and self-destruct or you can turn it on others and just destroy it and hurt and control and and work it out that way so either way and sometimes it's a mixture of both but yeah you can't keep that you can't keep that thing in the basement without and 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 for for alcoholics and addicts it's quite essential and I think probably in traditional you know it's not Then talk about it in the 12 steps but going to groups and talking about it and having other people, you know, witness your pain and hurt and realize that all these other, you know, brothers and sisters with you have been through other stuff like that has helped. And I think there is a, I think it's, it's helpful to remember. I intellectually get it. Oh, I've been traumatized. That's why I can't remember my childhood. That's what happened there. And that, that's not bad. That That's a step in the right direction, but it ain't enough. Well,
3: yeah.
2: I feel like Roger pointed to this earlier, Roger, when you cited the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism and there'd be different languaging of this across the various traditions, but if you think about it just functionally, how it goes, shame has led me to contract, and just what you said, John, to turn it on myself or to turn it towards others, and so when you get in the 12-step programs and there's this idea of surrendering to a higher power, that's like my worst nightmare. I'm going to surrender? <laughs> really, what I'm trying to do is protect. And so, whether it's in Buddhism or the 12 step program or any other wisdom tradition, worth it solves, what's required is to do the very worst thing imaginable, which is to let go of what I've done to protect myself. In fact, I look at my own addictive behaviors as survival strategies. So you're asking for me to let go of my survival strategies, even if they've been long-term dysfunctional, they served at some point, they're well, you know, they're, the, the psychic grooves are deep, and I'm being asked to let go of that. And so it really requires being in the supportive matrix, whether it be a group or in a, in, a, in a therapeutic relationship, where over time, very gradually, I can begin to let down the barriers that I've had that have kept me contracted or constricted, let those down, and eventually let go into I want to say, let go of self. Let go of self. And again, whether it's in Buddhism or Christianity or any other religious tradition, and it certainly is right at the heart of the Twelve Step Movement is is to let go, to really surrender. The the Serenity Prayer is all about that. To be able to let go of that which I can't control, and tell that to somebody in the midst of addiction, or tell tell that to somebody who's been severely traumatized. That the goal of their work is to let go, and they'll tell you you're crazy. It, it, it doesn't mean it's not true it just means it's really difficult it's
0: really challenging yeah and let me say something about shame that i found is that shame is not guilt right if you do something bad you feel guilty about it well that's good that's the universe of your soul saying you got to fix this you got to try to do something to to bring this back into balance but shame is not that i did something bad but i am bad bad i'm a, my essence is bad and broken and awful and and the horrible thing is child might have been abused uh, or abused as a child sexually violently all these different things and they take it in themselves and i'm bad because what was done to me you know it's like that's a that's that's a vicious twist but that's how it seems to play out and then you go well i'm bad i'm not worth it so why not just drink myself to death you know it doesn't matter i don't matter yeah there it is Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. shame it's a freeze response in the brain and so it, it shuts us down it's like a deer in the headlights and so one reason that I drank and did drugs was to feel alive again because I felt dead inside I had so much shame I'd inherited as my parents had inherited you can just take it all the way back to Adam and Eve okay so there was that so one way to be enlivened was to get high and I understand that on the other hand, uh, there's a way that the, the shame can also stir such fear and anxiety that I needed some way to numb out from it. And so I was kind of going both ways. I was numbing out with with my with my addictions, and I was also uh, getting high, getting enlivened. And you get caught in this loop of getting high, numbing out, getting high, numbing out. And I was lost in that and never did what you're talking about, Colette, never really... about what would it be like to let go of this particular game and begin to connect with trustworthy people. What I learned early on, and I see this a lot in the work I do, is that individuals who've been traumatized, it's typically in the context of relationship, So why would you go to relationship as resource if that's been the source of trauma? So let's just stick with substance. Let's stick up here because this is safe. So it really requires, Jung calls it the opus contra naturum. It's the work against nature. You have to go against what your natural instincts are, which is let me not trust people. You have to begin to be willing to open up to other individuals and to your higher power. And I
1: think that's why, too, that, I mean, the, the, one of the most important things that I learned in early recovery was to live in 24-hour compartments because you can do that in a day, right? You can allow a little bit more in, in a day. If you think, oh, it's always going to, I will always be vulnerable. You're less likely. I don't, I don't stay sober for the rest of my life. I've just happened to stay sober a day at a time for a long time.
2: Probably impressive.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, it's just working the 12 steps and having therapists and coaches, you know, when I need it and I bump up against something, I go get help. So it's that sense of, okay, what do I need to do? Who do I need to become? And how do I let this go? Again, it's always about surrender. Always, always, always about surrender. And I've never let go of anything that didn't have my claw marks all over it. So, you know, it's like, ah, and I'm like, even though I know, (laughs) I hey, surrender is the thing. It's like, no, I'm like, oh God, here we go again. And you kind of get, you get to a point where you learn to be the observer, the witness, you know, and realize, oh, here, here, this part of me goes again and and, a little, the machinations of fear or anxiety, whatever, you know? And And I do think though, too, I think all of us, since we've been through such a prolonged state of uncertainty on a global level, I think that's also become part of why we're seeing more and more of the kind of addictive behavior and bad behavior basically everywhere. <laughs> because that that was a collective trauma. I think that we could say that that was something we all shared. We all shared fear. We all shared losses, et cetera. You know, and now it's there's, there, it doesn't look like there's much relief.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's been a fair bit of research just in the last few years since COVID on trying to understand the radical increase in addiction and, and substance I use mean- it's really radical. Also a radical increase in suicides. And so these are really highly correlated and they've attributed them to two primary sources and both of them you've named Colette. One is the disconnection that comes owing to the pandemic of just quarantine. I mean, just, you know, so, so now we there's, there's no connection. And the second is related, and you also mentioned this too, in psychology, one of the ironclad correlations is between cognitive ambiguity, not knowing what's going to happen and anxiety. Mm-hmm they just the one goes up with the other and can you think of a time of more cognitive ambiguity not knowing what the hell happened year after year after year during covid and so it's no surprise then that we resort to all kinds of addictive means and also what you said just being bad <laughs> doing bad things is like it evokes depression, you know yeah yeah look at,
1: look at people on airplanes right now too like they're i'm I'm watching like people with such short fuses yeah, it's the, yeah. the, the the manners right the ma- what are the new manners right like what happened to manners we don't have that's also been interesting to see that dissolve.
2: I think manners are, are 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 a luxury of the frontal cortex <laughs> if I can just go brain for just a second right.
3: the, frontal <laughs> cortex is
2: the is the seat of our compassion and our communication and our that's our judgment in terms of lo- looking at long-term consequences. The more stressed I am, by definition, the less real estate I have in my frontal cortex, the more driven by the emotional center of the brain. And at some point, I just become kind of a midbrain stump. (laughs) And you don't want to be around me, you know? And I think we're in that. I love that.
1: That's funny. Midbrain stump.
3: I'm wondering to what extent these things you've been talking about, Bob, uh, play into the fact that it seems like, to a large degree, we haven't we haven't yet reestablished the degree of social connectivity after COVID. I, I have that feeling myself. I'm I'm beginning to make conscious effort to rebuild and and strengthen and enrich networks because I feel like it just hasn't recovered. And I hear this from a lot of people, and I also hear that people have become more introspective or less available. So something, I'm intrigued by what you're saying, Bob, about the shifts that have happened and the explosion of suicide and addiction.
2: It's an interesting question, Roger, that you're asking. I'm not unaware. Uh, uh, I'm 68 years old, Colette. <laughs> I'm very aware, moving into the fall, that there's there's at least one or two new strands of COVID against which I haven't been vaccinated yet. And I've been vaccinated along the way and I did get COVID, but I was spared the worst of it owing to vaccinations and medications that were available. So there's that, there's the information that we're not out of COVID. In fact, I just read in the New York Times this weekend that across the United States, including in California, I presume this is the case in Canada, there are increasing cases once against the COVID. And for people my age, I think 68 is the cutoff. So I think you're good, Colette. At my age, I need to be very aware of the risk factor, and so there's that. And then back to the, back to your your point, Roger, is that I think that fear does isolate us. Not always. So sometimes you can get kind of group think that is kind of scary. You can get people, you know, moving into a group. You're talking about your grandfather dying in Dachau think of what happened post-World War I in Germany in terms of the mentality of fear and loss and impoverishment and what catalyzed there around Hitler and Nazism. So I'm on the lookout for that. I'm not unaware of that here in the United States that there's a tendency to want to kind of clump together, but it's, it's clumping together in a very much ethnocentric way. It's us against them. So I think fear can make us do that. Having said that, I think individually, it does isolate us. I think fear, we have to go against that to reach out. To, and it's been your 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 mantras. What you've been singing today, Colette, is our need for connection. I totally support you in that. And it requires a lot of courage to do that, to risk when I'm fearful and want to protect myself or my family or my people to reach out and to, to connect, to include. It's moving against that. I think it's required and it really is under duress right now. John, you've been, a champion and so so involved in raising awareness around Ukraine and what's going on right now in, in that particular location. It's just heartbreaking to anybody that has a conscience and that's happening all over the world right now. And so it's understandable that, that we begin to isolate and or turn against and in that become much more vulnerable to addictive behaviors. Our good friend and my good friend Guy Duplessis, has written a number of articles on what he calls ideology addiction there's one for you to think. Oh, of. boy. That's cool. And and you think about how, how easy it is to resort to that. Now I'm going to be addicted to my belief system. Right. And if there is my belief system, I'm going to kill you for the sake of whatever the higher power of my belief system is. That's scary shit.
0: <laughs> and also you become part of an inner group. The people yeah. that get it, you know, there's, a, there's right. a whole group thing to this ideology, you know, you know, you wear your MAGA hat. Let's just bring that one out. It's so obviously the elephant that's you know, walking by in the room, it's something about being a part of that. You know, you got other people, and they get it, and yeah. you know, you you have the secret, you know, stuff that comes from Q and the QAnon thing and secret messages and everything. So there's a sense of deep belonging, and to leave that, even maybe your mind is starting, oh, maybe not so, you know, but it's like leave this. Then what do I do? Where do you go? Yeah, I'm just alone yeah. in the world again. You know. Yeah. I loved Eric Hoffer's book all those years ago.
2: He was the longshoreman philosopher and he wrote The True Believer and it was a psychology of mass movements and he wrote it back in the 50s, I believe it was. It's just a little short book that really had an impact on me, but that's what we are. We're all vulnerable to that right now. I love one of the things we're doing today, which is stepping back from the canvas and looking at addiction writ large, looking at it collectively. It's really easy to blame or indict some individual for being addicted. Now, aren't they a loser, you know, in terms of the kinds of attributions are made but if we step back and look at they we're all vulnerable to these cultural and global forces right now and that addiction could be understand understood in relationship to the collective as a, as much as to any individual story including individual trauma collectively globally we're in a state of trauma right now
0: boy howdy as they say out west and certainly are I wanted to ask you guys, and, and of course, Roger, you can join in on this, but, you know, Deep Transformation, that's the name of the, the podcast. And in the 12 Steps, the spiritual part is essential. You know, it, it, it started happening when Bill, you know, had this experience of light when he was in the mental hospital because of his addiction. And that, that has been carried down through generations of 12 Steppers, if you will. When I first started, I worked as a counselor slash therapist in a treatment center in, in Oakland called Thunder Road. I hope it's still there. It was a good one. It was for teenagers, for young people. You know, people got we worked so hard, we got really burnt out. That was a hard part of it. But either either you had a degree or you were in recovery yourself. They hired both kind of people. And I was I was the former. As I said, I've been on the been haunted by God since, you know, I was very young. And I like working in a place where you could you know, use the G word, if you will, yeah. <laughs> and you be escorted out of the building, you know, so it's like, oh, that's that's good. But I think if recovery is to to last and it's not just being dry, especially when, you know, you're dealing with all these heavy issues of trauma in more, many more cases than not, that spiritual aspect of the program has to get just beyond... The initial thing, you know, pray God, thank you for keeping me sober today, and help me do it tomorrow in the morning. I mean, that's all good. There's nothing wrong with that, but it has to go deeper than that. And and your friend and our our recent guest James Finley is a beautiful example of deep spiritual connection and being a brilliant psychologist and bringing those two together. And ultimately, it, it's I think it, it feels that that the deep kind of healing cannot happen without. The transformational spiritual practice so i would ask you guys it's like how, how do you keep it going you know what is your practice and how has it changed since so, and i know you were you, you were a scholar of you know, a christian a lot of stuff in, in in the university and you had a lot of book learning in religion bob you know you're, you're really good at that but then you know you fell on your face and everything you know and you had to come out of it and all of a sudden it wasn't a scholarly issue anymore. It was very personal. So how how has it changed for you guys since the first day you got sober and realized I can't do this anymore? And how has it progressed over the years? And what from that experience, what wisdom can you, you know, share with the rest of us about how to keep that connection strong to ground of being, God, spirit, however you want to say it? Go ahead,
2: Colette, why don't you start? I'm happy to respond, but I'd love to hear from you. This is so much your front yard and the work you do. Yeah.
1: Okay, I I was really excited to listen to you, but okay, I'll just throw myself in there. Okay, so I do pretty much what I did right from the beginning, but the difference being is that I change. So, you know, the transformational journey for me is about developing a conscious contact to a higher power that I I go from the word God to universe, to spirit, to feel, to source. I don't care what I name it. It doesn't mean there's no dogma attached to it. There is this great intelligence that when I align with it, then I am in coherence with the world. I'm aligned with the highest good. And I know that oftentimes what I think is best for me is not true. So I surrender to that greater truth and do no harm is a huge one for me. It's like, is this, you know, it, am I harming in any way? And, and if I'm, and if I'm unaware of it, how do I become aware of it? So I don't do it again, right? Doing a continuous inventory, you know, looking at where am I at right now? What, you know, how could I have done this better without it being perfectionistic, just about how awake and aware I am. And I, you know, outside of the 12 steps, I do therapy. I do the MDR because I've had like stuff that has lived inside my nervous system. I'm 65 years old and only two years ago, I started looking back at the stuff that happened to me when I was 19, that still comes up in the behavior that I have. It's mostly, it's not about what it outside does to me. It's that, oh, this part of me is really active and I don't, I can't think my way out of this. And it's creating problems for me, it's creating a dissonance for me with other people or with the world, et cetera. And for me also, I've, you know, to stay on track, connecting to my higher power, connecting to my recovery, I'm really clear now that boundaries, people pleasing, being, wearing the world as a loose garment, you know, and not trying to control things. My mantra, my husband loves this mantra. I am not in control. I am not large and in charge. Who's large and in charge? Not me. So you right. And then to have a sense of humor, to cultivate humor, you know, (laughs) but it's, but it's a dance, you know, it's a dance. Like I want certain things. I want to be creative. I want, I want results and that et cetera, et cetera. And then, okay, I got to surrender it too. It's like both and both and the thing that gets me, it gets me into trouble is when I, get overwhelmed with the amount of information that I see. And I feel like somehow almost apathetic because I can't do anything or enough or whatever. And then the anxiety. So I still have to work on that. But again, I could just give you a list of all my isms that I have to work on. But it's just, it's a commitment on a daily basis to inner peace, really. You know, letting those hungry ghosts go or, you know, recognizing that, you know, that the truth and the honesty and the rigorous honesty that I have to practice is all about feeling at peace and not wanting anything. I think that's the other thing. It's like letting go that wanting. And to me, I didn't even say the most important thing. Everything I do is service. Like Mm. when I say that I'm not like the perfect, but I am most happy when I know I'm in, that's what I did today before we talked. I prayed, show me how to be in service to this conversation. Just let me be in service, and Thy will be done through me, and not mine, because oftentimes mine's fucked up. Sorry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> to put it in, to put it in technical terms, <laughs> you know that, and, that
1: may not be the right one thing to do. <laughs>
3: and and just to acknowledge that I, uh, I I suspect all of us did, but uh, for myself, yes, I too took a moment and. Offered it up in the hopes that whatever came from our conversation would serve the good the welfare and awakening of all.
2: Yeah. Yep. Well, you are such a joy. You are such an absolute joy. I just love what you just shared.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. That was that was really there's so much in what you said. That was great.
1: You're a time.
2: I'll add just a couple of post postscripts in that, really, because I, I, you just, you know, boy, that's, that's impressive. You covered a lot of ground in there, and it resonates so powerfully with it. It's just such a pleasure to, to hear you articulate it. John knows this, and and uh, I discovered it in my own recovery, is that it evolved for me from the early days of doing it just to kind of hold stuff together, and I remember it turning to where no, I'm actually doing this as an end in and of itself. It's like no, I want I want a vital life. It's not just about not drinking or drugging. It's like I want I want I want a full life, and then what went into that was an awareness that there were things inside of me as for you oh by the way just a little digression i love what you said about two years ago beginning to do the next level of work on whatever happened to you at age 19 for which i'm sorry to hear that i work with clients and you do too that are across the age spectrum but i work with clients who in their 40s or 50s or 60s will say to me why did it take me so long bob and my response is this, is do you have any awareness of how many people live their entire lives and never get to this that you're getting to right now, consider it a, a, an incredible grace that you've been given this opportunity at any age, because it's very possible to go through this entire life and never get around the corner on this. And so I feel that. I mean, it's like you and I are still working till the day that we die. We're still working on things and clearing it out. And what a grace that is. So speaking of grace, the the postscripts are two for me. One is, we've already talked about this, because I had so much mortal shame, which wasn't around my not having fucked up because I had, it was left me with the idea that there was something about me that was broken or fucked up, and I had serious work to do on that, and I had the good... The good chance John knows this. I was I was very involved in 12-step fellowship, working with sponsor, working in the steps. That wasn't enough for me. So I got involved in refuge recovery, which started here locally, which is a Buddhist mindfulness-based recovery. And that wasn't enough. So I worked with John in integral recovery. I had to have three different recovery organizations and just barely. What I discovered along the way, and I got this from the the Buddhist tradition, was a forgiveness practice that I adopted very early on. And as John knows this, in fact, John's helped host this on I Awake, is that the forgiveness practice has been a daily practice for me, which includes, as you were saying, for you, Colette, an inventory, a daily forgiveness practice, which many, many more days than not for the last 11 years of my recovery. I will oftentimes tell people that this has been the most singular, the most impactful practice of any, anything I've done has been the forgiveness practice. And I say that, qualify that by saying, I don't think everybody has the mountain of shame I had, but that was what I was up against. And as I said earlier, I felt like it was going to do me in. So for me to begin to practice, not only asking others for forgiveness, which I got in the program, as well as granting forgiveness, but most important to others, but most importantly, beginning to experience self-compassion. It came out of this practice for me, and I still practice it every day. I don't see a time that I won't do that, which makes me think. Some clients will say, all of these practices, Bob and Colette, they seem awfully burdensome. And I will assure them that it's quite the opposite of that, is that when you experience the lightness of burden that comes from practices like this, you'll realize that everything else is burdensome in comparison to them. So I engage every day in a number of practices, none of which feel like, oh my gosh, do I have to do forgiveness today? It's never like that. And by the way, I never run out. It is not like I wake up and I go, I'm stumped. Like, what am I gonna work on today? There's always stuff that's processing. So the one postscript has to do with forgiveness practice. The second has to do with, John, you and I just published this on Iowake, has to do with another aspect of grace. If if grace manifests as self-compassion, grace for me also manifests in the daily practice. And I got this somewhere along the way, and it kind of evolved for me. It's daily gratitude practice. Yeah, And it's an odd thing to say, Colin. I'll say this to you and I being in recovery. My my moral inventory every day is quite complex. It's quite automatic at this point, but it's actually built into my gratitude practice. It's an odd marriage for me is I'll review my various addictions. By the way, substance was just one of them. I've got a whole series of things that I'm vulnerable to and want to keep my eyes on, and I'm open about that with clients I work with, is I express gratitude for anything that I did yesterday. I just do it in 24-hour incre- increments. I literally do it every morning. How did I do yesterday with my tendency to people please? How did I do yesterday with my tendency to want to buy things I don't need? And so on it goes. I, the, the list, the, And I go through that every day. And many of them, I feel really grateful that I made progress. And the things that I didn't, my gratitude is that God hasn't given up on me, and today I've got a a new day to to work on these. And so gratitude practice for me across the spectrum, from, from my sobriety to security I experienced in my life and relationships, connection like today, opportunities to contribute like today, anything that moves me in the direction of fulfilling what I see as my purpose on this planet, all of that, I express gratitude. I do it every morning because it sets the tone for every day. So I wanted to mention those two things. Forgiveness practice for me, which is always kind of keeping, always think of a pipe cleaner. It's kind of keeping stuff cleared out. And gratitude practice, which is, I wake up in the morning kind of grumpy. and I'm not proud to say that. But as I wake up and move into gratitude practice, I get de and I, I move into the day. And typically, <laughs> yeah. I feel really grateful to be alive. One of the things I do every morning is I I go through every client I'm going to see that day. My work is recovery coaching, and I spend some time with each client expressing gratitude. And I don't do this by rote feeling gratitude for being able to be with that person today. And in the spirit of what you said, Colette, and you too, Roger, may I be may I be clear enough of self to provide something that might be of worth here. I get the chills right now with it. I do that every morning, so it preps me for my day, so I don't go into my day going, oh, geez, a day of clients. It's like, wow, look at what I get to do today. So that's my addition. I love that, you
1: said that. Look what I get to do today. I do that every day. And, and I get up before my husband, I'm up at five 30 with the dogs, whatever. And even before I get out of bed, my hands on my heart, just saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's what I do. I just say, thank you. Cause I believe gratitude is the abracadabra. That's how we create reality is through that, that and forgiveness because without forgiveness, we carry a lot of baggage around with us and it can creep up on us. And they always told us, you know, in recovery early on, you know, that resentment is the number one offender, but it can be resentment of self, yeah. Too, yeah. right? You know, that, that shame pr- creeping back or that, you know, I didn't do it right or whatever. It's just like, you know, there's that, that forgiveness is so important. So crucial. I'm glad you brought those two things up because those are two core things.
0: Yeah, I'd like to just comment on that. And this goes back to the 12 steps and, you know, integral recovery. You know, what are we going to do now? The problem's getting worse in the world, et cetera. Well, there has to be an acknowledgement of, foundationally, the eternal verities, forgiveness, gratitude, service, love. It's not all about you. You know, Francis prayer, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. These things, however, that's manifested. It comes down to it. In my deepest, deepest spiritual explorations, I keep coming back to the same things, you know, and that that Sufis would agree with, that Buddhists would agree with, that Christians would agree with. It. It's it's there, and that has to be kind of the starting place. However, we do it, and it is that that makes life worth living, and is the answer? Well, why don't I just drink myself to death? You know, well, because gratitude, forgiveness, service, love, it's not all about you. You matter. And if you do that, that's going to hurt other people. Because if you get your act together, there's a lot of good that you can do in the world, whether it's just setting up the chairs, making bad coffee, or listening to other people's pain, you know, there's a path for you to walk and stay tuned. More will be revealed, right? So...
1: Thank you for this great conversation.
3: Yeah. Me too, me too. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much, Colette. <laughs> thank
1: you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really such yeah. an honor to
2: meet you, Colette. It's been yeah. such a- oh,
1: you know, This was a great conversation. I have to bounce. They they're now. It's I'm five minutes late now.
0: All right. Thank you. Hey, Colette. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Colette. You. Yes. These podcasts, you can listen to them many times, and I think there was a yes. lot here. I Anesha. think we
1: said a lot. Yes. 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 And let's talk again about doing another thing, like okay. energy problems. God bless you. Bye. Thank you. Thank nice you. meeting you, Robert. Nice to see you again. Bye.
3: Bye. Thanks, Collette. Yeah, you
2: that. too, Colette.
3: <laughs> uh, Well, let's see. We've covered an awful lot of ground today from the from an acknowledgement of the universality of addiction that is part of our human nature to the realization that there's an enormous spectrum from, from uh, being hooked on chocolate to being having one's life devastated by some truly horrendous, un- life-shattering addiction. And we've also covered a variety of recognitions of the roots of that, trauma Role role trauma plays in that, the necessity of a multimodal approach. And of course, John, that's your, your life work. You wrote the book, Integral Recovery, which brings together all the different modalities for recovery, and you've founded that movement. So that feels a very important emphasis to recognize that we as both individuals and a society and a civilization now are going to have to work to reduce addiction and to cultivate healing in many, many dimensions. And a lot depends of a lot of individual lives riding on this. And quite possibly our civilization is riding on it too.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Roger. That you yeah, you nailed it. Thank you both. Such an honor to be with both of you.
3: Wow, ditto, ditto. And thank you, Bob. Today's episode
0: was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do from John Roger and the Deep Transformation team.